Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is The Great Birth Rebellion. Welcome to this week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Now, last week we had, we did part one of optimal cord management, and this week we are carrying on that discussion. This is the second part of that discussion on optimal cord management, but we're talking about optimal cord management in special situations. And as you listen, you'll hear through what situations we're going to talk about, but specifically things like blood gases from the cord, which will be a thing that midwives will be super interested in because some hospitals have got policies now that require every single baby to have cord gases, regardless of if they're well or not. Things like if you're doing active management of the placenta, what do you do with the cord if you want to do optimal cord management? collecting blood from the placenta for negative blood type women and much more. So hang tight, have a listen to part two of optimal cord management. I would highly recommend that you listen to part one before you listen to this one because all of the backstory is in part one and this is a continuation of last week's episode. So, well, I mean, let's talk about placental management with an intact unclamped cord because there's research on this. And this is where sometimes midwives don't know what to do. Like, should I clamp and cut it before or after I administer the oxytocin for the placental birth? And if you're in a hospital, chances are 99% of you are going to be either practicing or receiving active management. Again, if you're wondering what that is, placenta episode of the Great Birth Rebellion is where you want to go. So uh, there's been research on this. Active management. So um, there's a paper called Optimal Timing of Oxytocin Administration for Active Management of Placental Birth with Optimal Cord Clamping. So have a look in the resource folder. If you're on the mailing list, you'll see that. What they found was that you can give oxytocin at any time with the cord intact, and that won't impact on the level of blood loss for the mother or on that transition for the baby. So one of the concerns was is if they wait to administer the oxytocin until after the cord is clamped and cut, until after optimal cord clamping, would that lead to higher blood loss for the women? The answer is no. So the research found that even if you wait three, four, five minutes and you want to wait and do optimal cord clamping for four or five minutes, however long you want to wait, cut and clamp the cord and then administer the oxytocin to do active management, there wasn't an increase in blood loss for the women. So you don't put a woman at increased risk of a postpartum hemorrhage by waiting till the cord is white, then cutting and clamping the cord, then doing active management is an appropriate clinical strategy for actively managed placental birth. It did not lead to an increase in blood loss for the women or postpartum hemorrhage. So you can confidently do that based on the research. So have a look at that research paper so we can no longer argue that we need to cut and clamp in order to give the oxytocin or do active management. You can actually wait. It's a super important research paper because that's what most people, especially clinicians, that's what they'll face, that issue. Yes. 
Now, I want to talk about, so that, that uh, that's what I'm going to talk about with optimal cord clamping. Now I want to talk about optimal cord management in unique situations. So I think we can all agree clinically that, yes, we should all be waiting for, for white before we cut and clamp the cord. But what happens in special circumstances where something needs to be done to or for the baby and that might involve needing to cut and clamp the cord? How do we decide when we still intervene? When is it appropriate to still intervene in that transition process because maybe the intervention has a perceived higher benefit than leaving the cord intact? So let's talk about preterm births. And there's a Cochrane review on this. You can read the full paper. Optimal cord clamping for preterm infants between 24 and 36 weeks. Now, obviously, babies who are much, much younger might need more rapid intervention than babies who are older. So, you know, if you've got a 34-weeker that's born, you might have a lot more leeway for optimal cord clamping than if you've got a 24 or 28-weeker born, right? And also depending on what the situation is. So if you've been really unwell and or the baby is really unwell, they're going to need more intervention sooner. Yeah. So I don't want to kind of go and make like blanket assumptions of like you should give all these babies optimal cord clamping. It's going to be really unique to your situation. But the Cochrane paper did show that the longer you could leave the cord pulsating, the better the outcomes for the baby long-term, the fewer deaths and better transitions. So overall, still practicing optimal cord clamping, giving as much time as you possibly can for preterm infants does have an impact on long-term outcomes. Did that have a time in it? Because I remember the, there was a study being done in Melbourne when I was working there um, and, it, and it was quoted at the time and we were really offering that. So for preterm, they were calling it the golden minute. So they were putting a time frame on it and they were saying that this minute is super important for preterm babies. And so I remember being in cesareans and births where we literally all just stopped and gave this baby exactly 60 seconds and and because that's what had been correlate, like correlated with the research. So is that... Did it, did it have a time? And I know we don't want to give a time, but just in terms of what the evidence and what the study looked like. Well, it was a Cochrane review, so it was a systematic review, so it pulled yeah. a lot of results. But some of the, they talked about less than 30 seconds and over 30 seconds. So really any time, I mean, 30 seconds, I think, was one of the minimum times that this that of the studies they found. Anything more than that is amazing. So if you don't absolutely need to cut that cord, the longer you can give it to transition, the better the outcomes for that baby. And just really want to acknowledge here, when we start to change our practice, it does take a toll on the clinicians. And I can remember when we started doing this because, you know, okay, we've got a preterm baby, we need to resuscitate. And you do, like, you know, when you wait for that baby to cry, there is a physiological affecting you so just honoring those of us that change our practice and 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 take that initiative to step up and try something new because in this environment it feels big it can feel big um and and I mean that makes a great point in terms of you know they often detach these babies for the purpose of resuscitation but if we see attachment to the cord and the placenta as resuscitation as a resuscitation technique you know, the baby is still using its cord and placenta as a resuscitation tool, as a tool to get enough oxygen. So if the baby's still using it, it doesn't doesn't theoretically need external oxygen because it's still oxygenated through its placenta 
If the placenta is still attached to its mother, that's all still functioning as it was when the baby was in utero. So what's the rush in interrupting that? You've got a guaranteed, um, it's an insurance policy actually. So if you're trying to resuscitate a baby and it's still attached to its placenta and cord, that is like an extra element to resus that you don't have to participate in that the baby's working on itself. You can do all the other stuff still with the placenta attached. I like to think of the placenta as your first responder to the resuscitation. They're actually your best friend in resuscitation. And when I worked in this incredible publicly funded home birth program, we had a Neopuff. So the actual very fancy machine that is on the wall of most hospital systems that is the resuscitation unit. We had portable ones. And so we would take them to home births. And so then we had women that were like, well, can you bring that in if we're birthing in the hospital system so you can resuscitate my baby still attached to me? I was like, yes, yes, we can. And for some women, we had these things put in place. And it's like, if you can do it for one, you can do it for all. So we really want to put out there today, like that resuscitator is not there. I want to I want to be kind with this but I think in terms of short and long term outcomes the worst thing we do to humans is separate a baby from its mother at birth and I'm not just talking cutting the cord and take I'm talking that physical removal I see the placenta as our first responder along with the mother who that placenta is a part of. So that mother and placenta are our first responders to resuscitation. They are our greatest gifts. They are the greatest tools we have in resuscitation. But um, the reason we take that baby away is for the practitioners. It's to have space to access because we think we can't have space to access the baby. There is this inbuilt belief system that we're not going to have enough room. We want the baby flat. There is an inbuilt belief system that in order for the baby to be flat, it has to be on something that is sturdy. And we we take the baby to the equipment. Why can't we take the equipment to the baby that's already got its resuscitation equipment? The mother and the placenta, that mother's voice, that mother's smell, that mother's touch. It's that all that connects to the mother is connected to that baby's nervous system. You want to keep that baby's nervous system safe, keep it with its mother, and then the resuscitation is going to have a much better effect because the baby's not as in as much danger. And I also wonder if if we're doing a resuscitation while the baby's still attached to its cord, if there's a mother witnessing their baby being worked on, I'm also now wondering. Again, I haven't researched this, but what happens to a woman's adrenaline when she's seen that happen to her baby and how much of that gets transferred then again to the baby while it's still attached to its placenta? And if it's not fully breathing yet and fully hasn't transitioned, it won't have shut off all of those little doors that we talked about earlier. So it's still using that mechanism. Like it just makes no sense to detach the baby. No, and what I think about, you're thinking about adrenaline, I'm thinking about oxytocin and what needs to be initiated in that mother's brain at that point of her 
transition into motherhood. And, you know, so to look at that and go, okay, well, now that mother's body is filled with adrenaline instead of the oxytocin she was meant to receive, what what flow-on effect does that have? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I want to call it. It's an OHS issue. This is an OHS issue. A part of it is an OHS issue, right? When right? they say we can't re- we can't get in there to resuscitate the baby. Yeah, but and we need we need all this room and we need all the equipment in one place. Like I really think all these kind of steps that we have takes away from the intelligence that we hold. Like we're super intelligent humans who are able to adapt and figure things out. And this is a system issue. Taking a, taking a baby away to resuscitate is not necessary. It's just we haven't paused and gone, gone how can we do this better and what would be more beneficial? Yeah. And, and, and it's insurance and it's OHS. That is a part of this. And I think, you know, we need to we need to be able to talk about that because it is a part of it. Because if there's an issue that happens, you know, so much of this comes down to insurance policies. Well, I mean, the system, we know the system's always been either system or practitioner-centric. The woman and the baby has been secondary. And although people say, no, we do all this stuff for the benefit of the baby, and they'll say... Well, we needed to take the baby to the resuscitator so that we could effectively look after your baby, but they forgot to recognize that actually the baby had the capability of looking after itself along with its mother with some assistance. It's not completely reliant upon us. So, yeah. I that requires trust. That requires trust. I really understand where you've come from. Well, no, you've got got papers. We've got research papers about this, about doing resus. And, again, you can have a look at, you know that the research papers we've got them in the resource folder which talk about the use of the placenta for resuscitation yeah and it is evidence-based and we're not saying yeah. wait and don't resus we're just saying resus with the baby still attached and yes we can do this yes we're capable of it so those of you listening you're a practitioner please start having these conversations take the research that's in the folders and say you know what what we're doing is okay. We're not, you know, we're not trying to, we're not, no, no one's trying to do anything to be harmful, but what we're now starting to re- realise, or we're probably, you know what, I'm going to call it, we've realised it for a long time. Now we have the evidence to support our realisations. So let's move forward with it. And let's say that in the system, in our meetings, with our educators, hey, you know what, here's this research. How do you reckon we can implement it to change practice so that it is best practice? When you're actually going to, if you come at it from a financial situation, you're actually going to have babies in better condition doing it this way and you're likely to reduce the cost of things like high acuity care for babies. And so if you look at it practically, actually the outcomes, not only are they going to be better for babies, but they're possibly going to have shorter stays in your facilities and it's very expensive to look after a baby in a high acuity setting every day that that baby's not in the unit is saving the hospital money so by not intervening and by actually just waiting it could be a minute or two and still giving all of the care that you were supposed to you can actually really improve the baby's outcomes not just like you can improve it in the long term but also reduce its reliance on that service for a longer period of time if you're listening to this pregnant and you're feeling overwhelmed 
just a lot of love, take a step back and just think about, okay, what is important to me here? Yeah, I want my own unique transition for my baby to occur. I want to wait for white. I don't want any comments to impact and change the course of what we wanted and start talking to your care provider around if a resuscitation is necessary, how are you going to do it? It's hard within the system to make changes. And the best way we're going to make changes is from all of you listening to this that are pregnant, consumers hold the power. And so when you start talking to your care provider, maybe you won't be the person that it actually occurs for, but maybe the third person that comes to your care provider and starts having that conversation is what initiates change. So never underestimate the value you have as a person accessing the system and the flow-on effect you can you can um, impact. So please start having these conversations. Hey, how do you resuscitate a baby? So ask your care provider when you're pregnant. How is it done? Okay, here's some research. Is how can we talk about how we can actually, if my baby does need resuscitation, have that occur with my baby attached to me? Yeah, and it's not like you're declining resuscitation. You're no. just saying, can it happen on this table instead of that table? Yeah, and I and I want to say yes, it can because as a home birth midwife, and so is Mel going to say, Mel does not have a resuscitator stuck to the wall at home births, right? And so, and I worked in other publicly funded home birth models where we didn't have the fancy neopuff, we had bag a mask, and we always just brought that to the baby. I never actually had to in my clinical work never transferred a baby there's been recess. We've definitely given some resuscitation and then that baby has been well and has continued to stay at home. Um, and the family has been a part of that resuscitation. And I mean, in terms of physical outcomes, I've seen it, you know, a huge improvement compared to when I've done it in the hospital, but in terms of emotional outcomes, it's massive too. And that's what we want to think of here. Yeah. Cause people will often go, well, as long as the baby's healthy. So yeah, let's take it to the resuscitator. Well, what is your definition of health? And for many of us, actually, when we stop and pause, emotional well-being is a big part of that for your baby or baby's emotional well-being because it has feelings and yours and, and your partner's. And even, I mean, we theoretically should be giving babies an entire minute to transition before doing anything anyway. So, you know, yeah, when a baby comes out, we assess their well-being at a minute. We give them that amount of time to come good and come in so yeah we we can at least give a minute even if that baby does need some assistance all right so that is not clamping as part of resuscitation now the other reason that they might give you for wanting to clamp and cut the cord is for okay this is a bugbear of mine it's becoming more routine is routinely clamping the cord to collect what we call cord gases now uh, to women, what I want to say is that this is blood collection on your baby and any intervention that happens to you or your baby, you can decline and you can ask, do not take cord gases on my baby if it's well, for example. You can opt in or out of these tests. Midwives, if you are required to do routine cord gases on babies, you've got to remember you still need to get consent from women. You can't just do these without the woman being aware just because the baby can't feel it because it's like, you know, that's the baby's blood, that's the baby's body, and that baby is the responsibility of the parent. 
And I want to add in doctors there because you said just midwives, but midwives well, and doctors because doctors, it's, yeah. it's, I remember starting in a new workplace where it was just done and I'd never seen it before and just being like, what is going on here? And it was just this little sneaky little thing that was just done as, you know, the woman wasn't even aware. And so this may have been done to you and you may not have been aware. You really want to keep advocating. So, yeah, this is something you really want to ask if anyone is at, your introitus or touching anything that is connected to you, so your core, your placenta, your baby or your body, you have the right to go, hey, what are you doing? What's happening here? Or your partner, your birth support people do that because often you're, you know, either recovering or trying to connect with your baby and then these things are happening and you're not even aware. Yeah, because although they're not doing a procedure on your baby, they are taking your baby's blood. And although it doesn't hurt the baby, so some people think, oh, no, it's just it's cord blood. It's not cord blood. It's the baby's blood that happens to be in the cord. So we got to stop calling it cord blood. It's not cord blood. It's the baby's blood. And it's, and it's the baby's cord. And it's the baby's cord. And so to you. Right. So a part of you, it is a part of you, even though the baby grew it and it and it's its organ, the placenta is its organ, it's a part of you. So this what I'm saying is consent has to occur. And yeah. so if this so you might be at a hospital that does routine blood gases, so that routinely collects arterial and venous blood. Sometimes hospitals will only do this if your baby has been in what they would perceive to be distress, or it's been a very complex labor and birth. Uh, sometimes cord gases are done to determine if the baby was in distress. So this is a, um, this is, I mean, I don't fully understand the rationale. They want to know if the baby was in distress. And sometimes this can impact future care, but really what should be impacting the care of the baby is the condition of the baby now. And I won't go into the research, but you know, using cord gases as a diagnostic process isn't an exact science. But some hospitals are doing routine cord gases, and this is what I have a problem with. I don't have a problem with cord gases being done on a baby that was potentially unwell. I do not understand the rationale behind routine cord gases because what is happening is that practitioners believe that in order to get these routine blood gases or in order to do the blood gases, they need to quickly clamp and cut a segment of the cord to somehow capture that blood and do the procedure. Now, if you're thinking about it as cord blood collection, of course you're going to have that thought, like I need to capture that blood while it's in the cord and I need to somehow capture it at a particular time. But these blood gases are done to determine the, the well-being and condition of the baby during labour and if it was hypoxic or not and the impact that that's had on its pH. And so any blood that's in the cord has been in the baby. So whatever timing that that's collected, whether or not it's flowing through the cord or not, still gives you the information that you're after. You don't have to clamp and cut and capture the blood to gather it. There's actually studies, there's two papers in the research fo resource folder done. You can collect cord gases while the cord is still pulsing without clamping it and get very, very similar results as to, at, compared to if you clamped it or not. So you can actually do cord gases on an intact cord 
while it's attached to the baby, while the placenta is still in its mother. So there was a 2014 study done that basically found no difference whether or not they clamped and clamped the cord or did it with the cord still flow, blood still flowing. And then there was a bigger one done in 2021, which showed some slight difference, but they said it was not of clinical significance as to whether or not it was clamped or not. So if you're a midwife and you're working in a facility that's requiring this to be done routinely, then feel confident that if you do this with the cord not clamped, the results are actually going to be quite similar. And possibly your facility, this is me being the rebel, is not necessarily concerned as to whether or not you followed the assigned process, whether or not you cut and clamped the cord before getting the blood. The, the idea is that you've got the blood. So you can get the blood without the cord being clamped and get very, very similar results to if it was. So for midwives who need are required to do this and are struggling with that, you, you don't have to clamp it. For women who are looking for optimal cord clamping and your baby's perfectly well and they can't give you a really good clinical reason as to why your baby needs cord gases, it's okay for you to say, I don't want my baby to have cord gases done. I think what's happening, and I feel like this needs a whole other episode on its own, is this is leading to further interventions, practices that are coming in like heel prick tests and extra observations. I mean, we should be observing all babies, but it feels like it's there's just been this flow-on effect of more interventions and observations on, on babes. Yeah, so, you know, this is something women can decline. Uh, it's very hard for practitioners to sort of say, well, I'm not doing that because some hospitals are requiring it, but know that it doesn't have to impact on blood flow through the placenta in order to do this. It just takes a bit of extra thought, you know, to actually uh, do the, do it when you're with the mum and the baby. And I just want to really uh, like just say how sorry I am to women and clinicians who are required to be so intimately in a woman's space to clamp and cut the cord, to do active management, and to collect blood gases off well, healthy women and babies. This is the amount of intervention that's happening within minutes of a baby being born. And I just want to apologise to every woman who's ever had that done unnecessarily and to the clinicians who are forced by their employers to be in women's space like that in the critical few minutes after a baby's born. I'm going on an absolute rant, but it's... No, but we know about the halo. We were, we were taught in our practice to respect the halo. And we, what we're thinking of here is short and long-term outcomes for mum and baby and the whole family. We're thinking about how brains are wired and how bodies transition. We're thinking about Physio physiology and emotional and physical well-being and it can really go against you as a clinician to have to do things when it doesn't feel right and, and we're really talking here well women and babies you know and and when they're unwell I mean it cannot feel nice to have to intervene either but but at least it's necessary and everyone often welcomes that what we're really talking about is all the unnecessary intervention that is playing out and not us not think stopping to pause and think about the huge flow and effect that has for human beings as as a race. Yeah, yeah. So I just think we need to always be asking ourselves why we're we doing this and is it absolutely important? And this is where 
And is it giving us the outcomes that we're expecting? It's not just is it important, is it actually giving us what we want from it? And is it, which is improving outcomes? So all these cord gases on why are we doing it? Who are we doing it for? Is it improving outcomes? What are we trying? Is this, and if we're trying to gather data, then we haven't done the ethics approval for it. So this can't be done for research. We can't have these, our own little research project that we haven't got ethics, sought ethics approval and consent for. You know, it's not okay that we're, essentially we're experimenting. Really? Like why are we doing well, it, it? I mean, it is. I mean, they, they're trying to see if a baby was compromised. That's the reason for blood gases. Was this baby truly compromised? And, I, I mean, I'm sure it's all just about us covering and litigation and whatever, but it's honestly for women, if you can walk in and say, I don't want cord gases done if my baby's well. I mean, if your baby is unwell, they're going to treat your baby. I mean, the cord gases is almost irrelevant. We're not going to go, oh, this baby is unwell, but the cord gases say it's okay, so we're not going to treat. No. And I feel like this is what's happening. Oh, the cold gases are telling us that your baby should be in a worse state than it is, so let's do extra things. And that is, that's what I feel like. That's my biggest rife with it is like, hang on a second, you're using that to predict or tell you the clinical situation. The clinical situation is in front of you. Assess that baby as you normally would without that information and then tell me what you need to do because that's what we should be acting on. Yeah, not like the cord gases from before. And if you listen to our CTG episode as well with Kirsten Small, she touched on the issues of cord gases and the issues of interpreting them. Uh, so anyway, it's a it's a big topic, but I guess what I'm trying to say is is don't let the need to collect cord, cord gases impact upon the length of time you leave the cord unclamped because it shouldn't impact that. And the other reason why clinicians are sometimes cutting and cutting or clamping the cord is to collect blood to get the blood type of the baby. So if a woman has a negative blood group, this is about 10% of the population has a negative blood group, then they will collect some of the baby's blood from the cord in order to test the blood type and also to check if there's been any crossing over of the maternal and fetal blood circulation to determine if there's a need for ETG. Again, whole other topic. But uh, most practitioners will clamp the cord in order to collect cord blood. If you go to my Instagram page, you will watch me do a full tutorial for you on how to collect blood from the placenta for blood typing and a, an adapt test. So if, if I have a client who's got a negative blood group and I'm doing a blood test on the baby to check for maternal fetal circulation mixing and the blood type, you can collect as much blood as you need from the actual placenta, not the cord. And once the baby's completely finished with it and it's detached from the baby. So go ahead and have a look at that tutorial. There is no need, zero need ever to clamp a cord in order to get blood typing because there's that tutorial out there. So no excuses. And the final other reason why people are not allowing the baby to get their full blood volume through the cord is some families are opting for blood banking uh, with the idea of collecting and storing the baby's stem cells. I have not got research papers on this, but if you look back to last week's episode where we talked about the physiology of, of how um, 
how much blood the baby needs and the transition period that has to occur in order for a baby to properly transition. It doesn't make medical sense to be depriving a baby of that in the interest of storing a baby's blood for the potential of the stem cell use later in life. So anyway, I'm not on board with stem with blood cord collection or blood collection of babies stored for later. There's a that's a whole thing, but that's the other reason why uh, some people are depriving the baby of their full blood volume is in order to store it for later. But I would encourage you to consider the physiology of that and if it's a wise initial decision for the beginning of your baby's life. Um, that was big. That was so much bigger than I thought it was going to be. But I'm glad we split it into two and um, had that. And just acknowledging that it might feel really overwhelming. Please, as always, go to the research, have a look at it, and try to pull out what you need from it and take it to your care provider. That's why you have care providers is to be able to discuss this stuff with them. And in saying that, I'm thinking of all the seven to 15 minute appointments that people have and how tricky that can be if you don't have continuity of care. So um, we have extended our team at Core and Floor and there's a hell of a lot of people now that you can actually connect with because I was being booked out six months in advance and it just was not okay. So I have an incredible team of care providers that you can connect with um, and, and chat all things with so if anything's been triggering in these episodes or you know birthday briefs birth preparation chats all that kind of stuff please uh we've got lots of availability now which is epic yeah i just wanted to plug too but i'm doing a whole heap of webinars in the next six months and they're super cheap you pay twenty dollars for 14 days access fifty dollars for three months access or a hundred dollars for a whole year and you get access to all the previous webinars that we've recorded and all future lives so you can join us live you can join me live and, and any guests that I'm having on and ask questions and we're doing lots of different ones like I've got the incredible Lucy Peach who is the period queen woman coming on we're doing ones with money but lots around um, obviously my forte things like core and pelvic floor stuff so prolapse birthing with prolapse birthing after severe perineum trauma they're all coming up and we've just done one on optimal maternal alignment which we're going to talk about on the podcast too but a lot more information in the webinar and images and stuff because I think that's what the podcast sometimes it's hard I want to like draw things and, and show people things and demonstrate things so we've got that in the webinar thanks Mel for my um for my little space there but it's super valuable I mean if you think I think of the things that I've spent a hundred dollars on so I bought 150 dollars worth of house plants yesterday I had a massage a few weeks ago for $130 and then I took my daughter to the osteopath and paid $95 for, I mean, and if you think about the value that you're going to get for an entire year of webinars with B, I mean, $100 seems like B's gotten ripped off. So take advantage. My big, big things is accessibility because I've worked in rural and remote places and, um, you know, and, and I get it. I get it. So I really, I'd rather more of you have access to it um, than less. So that's why that's there. Go ahead and rip me off and just pay <laughs> only $100 for all of her webinars. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. Those That's been our two episodes on optimal cord management. And as that's heaps of information for both women and midwives in there. Go to the resource folder if you need any of the research papers. And that is this week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Thanks for listening with us today. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> All right.